Hey, you're listening to A Time of Monsters. Uh, For those of you that have listened to this podcast before, welcome back. I'm going to be doing something a little different with this introduction, um, a little less formal than usual. And for those of you tuning in for the first time, hi, I'm Aaron. This is a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it, in which I interview organizers, journalists, authors, academics, and thinkers on the left about where we are, how we got here, and how we can get the hell out. Now, before I introduce our two guests today, I'd just like to say thank you so much to everyone for your outpouring of love and support, um, especially financial support after my car accident. I don't know what else to say besides your camaraderie was overwhelming and much appreciated at a very difficult time in my life. And um, I love you guys for that. And thank you. So today I'm going to be speaking with Matthew Sittman and Sam Adler-Bell, hosts of the Know Your Enemy podcast produced by Descent Magazine. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, Matt and Sam do an excellent job of covering the American right and providing historical context for the conservative movement. And um, I really recommend you check their pod out and um, consider becoming a patron. In one of their latest episodes, Did It Happen Here? um, They answered the question of whether or not we crossed the Rubicon into fascism, given Trump's presidency and the events of January 6th, uh, the siege on the Capitol. Um, I'll leave a link to that episode in the show notes. In today's episode, we discuss the implications of a Biden presidency for the left, how the left can hold Biden accountable, whatever the hell that was on January 6th, and the future of the Republican Party post-Trump. I think you guys will really like this interview. Um, Matt and Sam are cautiously optimistic about a Biden presidency, and um, I think their insight into the American right is much needed right now, especially for leftists. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview. But my boyfriend Max loves it. Yeah. So he's just like, you know, like grabbing it and yeah, you know, the, I think kiss give me a kiss with a big fuzz. So I'm since I don't have to go into the office or anything, I've been, you know. Yeah. I imagine when it's cold out now, it feels nice. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime I'm out, I have a mask on. So yeah. Oh yeah. But the mask beard combo is actually kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I don't like it. Yeah, whatever. All right. Okay. Yeah, you're like double padded up. It's yeah. like, you know, like wearing long johns with like corduroys on in the summer maybe <laughs> yeah. Aaron, yeah Aaron, where do you live i live in georgia yeah um like east outside of atlanta like about 30 minutes cool yeah, yeah. congrats on your new uh senators oh god especially I, one of them especially it, one of them i, I mean saw, Aaron, i saw yeah. that you voted you posted that you voted i, so, I did vote yeah i did vote get a, get a hard time from your ultra leftist <laughs> fans but we know you voted I mean, I had I had to because like, um, I mean, I worked on Ossoff's congressional campaign when he was running for Congress. Oh, wow. Um, and I mean, by that time, I was pretty much like blackpilled on electoralism, but I just needed a job. Yeah. Um, and I got to meet and I, for a minute, I had like a tinge of hope that he was going to be like anything more than like spam in a suit, like canned spam in a suit. Yeah. But no, he was like very just underwhelming. But Warnock, that's that's. Eh. Yeah, I give myself a little bit of excitement about that. That's pretty cool. We like Warnock. We're uh, I know you guys oh, like Warnock. I, I yeah. remember listening to your episode. I know. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, and um, uh, don't don't mind if I uh, use my jewel here. Sometimes. Oh no, no. Uh, I wish I wish I could. Um, I mean, I've been sneaking like one or two cigarettes, but I really can't do it, and I can't even vape. <laughs> yeah, because of the I'm, lung. Yeah, yeah. My lung. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably wise to hold <laughs> off for a while. <laughs> I don't want to die quite yet. <laughs> I give yeah. myself like another yeah. twenty years at least. 
All right. So uh, I've started recording. I'll just get started then. Um, thanks so much for coming on, y'all. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I love your show. Mm. I think I'm a patron of like four podcasts and your podcast is one of them. Nice. Um, oh, well, and I actually always you. look forward. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just like, again, I was saying to Matt earlier, um, I think being a leftist, it's important to understand like what the hell the right is doing. And you guys like uh, you have a lot of historical context that I'm not familiar with. And will point me towards books and authors that I can read. Mm-hmm. So it actually is like it's not listening to like and I, you know, I like Chapo and I like all of that sort of dirtbag left stuff. But if I'm going to listen to a podcast, especially when I used to work, I want it to be like a reading experience, almost like a learning experience, at least. You know? uh-huh. yeah. So you guys do that very, very well. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank uh, you, man. You know, as, as the ex-conservative on the podcast, <laughs> uh, I had to read so much of that shit. You know, I'm immersed in, uh, you know, Russell Kirk and Bill Buckley and. Uh, you know, some of the just some of the, the books the right has written. Yeah. So I feel like this is one way for me to use it in a way that might be helpful to people because redeem what, yourself. what the hell else am I going to do with all this useless knowledge? Exactly. And you redeem yourself, right? <laughs> I, I'm trying. I, I still have a ways to go, I think. I'm still paying for my sins. The, po- the podcast is one long exorcism of uh, his conservative demons. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Just every episode. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they say men will start a podcast rather than go to therapy. And that's definitely oh, true. That, that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> that's literally yeah. what I did. Mm-hmm. All right. So I guess like to start, I just want to, I guess I'll uh, break it up into two parts. Um, I want to talk about the the future of the Democrats and the left and then the right. And then when we talk about the right, um, of course, I want to cover whatever the hell that was on January 6th. Uh-huh. But um, I guess to start out. So, um, you know, Joe Biden is now president. We have a new uh, dear leader. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a high turnout election where Biden, uh, Trump actually turned out 10 million more voters than he did last time. Uh, he increased his share, I think, just a little bit among like um, blacks and Latinos. Mm-hmm. But still, it was impressive considering that we were in the midst of a pandemic where hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of people were dead. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But Biden as well actually turned out 10 million more voters than Hillary did last time. Yeah. Um, and persuaded more conservative white voters to come out. But the Democrats performed poorly down ballot. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess to ask you guys now, especially in the wake of the Georgia Senate races where the Democrats have control over the Senate with uh, Kamala Harris presiding over that final vote, what do you guys think we can expect from um, a Biden administration in terms of progressive policy? I'm a little bit skeptical. Of course, that's the, there's that debacle over the uh, $1,400 checks as opposed to $2,000 checks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also Biden saying that he wants to uh, have a bipartisan consensus yeah. uh, with the stimulus, which is like, dude, you can just do budget reconciliation like the Republicans always do. But um, yeah, to ask you guys, like uh, either one of you guys can start first. What what do you think a Biden administration is going to look like in terms of progressive policy? Ooh, that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. And it's very broad. But I, I will say uh, the recent elections in Georgia, uh, when Democrats gained the Senate, uh, when both Ossoff and uh, Reverend Warnock won, I do think there's a way in which like the disappointment of election night when it was clear, like Democrats had lost some House seats, the Senate was up in the air. And then the fact that we didn't really know for certain that Biden won for a few days. I think maybe now I look back and think, well, maybe it wasn't quite as as much of a downer as I thought it was on election night. Yeah. Uh, when I was really down, because I just thought if we don't have the Senate, if Democrats don't have the Senate, that's just, I mean, that's just going to make everything so difficult, yeah. including even just getting a cabinet uh, improved, right? Yeah. yeah. So now I'm not sure what to think. I think there's some hopeful signs, like the idea that it's okay if the deficit increases uh, because we spend money on things that are important to helping people. And I think there you can kind of see even in who's he selected for 
his cabinet, um, the, the main team he's going to have. You can kind of see there's going to be a push and pull mm-hmm. between standard, like kind of centrist Democrats, very establishment people who were in the Obama administration and who I don't really love from the Obama administration with, yeah. with some choices that are maybe a little more hopeful. Yeah. So I'm not sure exactly what to think, but I think it'll be a push and pull. And I think there are signs that even if it's not going to be everything the left wants, for sure. Mm. It seems like there might be some ways to push and get at least some things that the left wants. Yeah, I feel like probably, I haven't looked at your guest list recently, but like I imagine we're like more like wiggly lib- libs compared to your typical yeah. fair, you know, humanist socialist, uh, liberal socialism. That's what we do. But um, yeah. yeah, so we'll give you some of the more sunny optimism. But I, I also have some some dark pessimism too to provide. But in terms of sunny optimism, I think what Matt mentioned about the deficits is key. Um, we really are living in a new macroeconomic moment um, where both parties have basically stopped even pretending to care about deficits. And of course, Republicans never care about deficits <laughs> when, it, when they're in power and they usually just run them up by doing tax breaks for the wealthy. Um, and increasing military spending, but at the same time, but even, but now with the the two thousand dollar check thing, with uh, you had you know people like Josh Hawley, piece of shit, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, we're gonna talk about him later, friend of yeah, the show. Yeah, but you know, friend of the show, friend of the show. Um, there's been a a break with neoliberal economic orthodoxy in both parties to some degree, regardless of how sincere it is in either case. Um, but it it matters that. Even Biden, who his whole entire career has been a balanced budget, uh, we need to do entitlement reform, uh, privatize Social Security. Like he was Mister Budget Hawk, yeah. you know, from from for the for his career, especially in the '90s when that was like the only game in town for for Democrats. To him now saying, no, you know, I've been talking to my economic advisors and they say we absolutely need to deficit spend right now, which is the most fucking obvious thing in the world. (laughs) But but nonetheless, um, that there's no kind of preemptive like, oh, we're going to have to see how much it costs and we'll see about this. We'll see about this. So I think that there's a lot of reasons that that's happened. I think it's interesting. But the fact is that it's not going to be a strong rhetorical tool against the demands of the left for more spending mm. as it usually is you know like this the the, the republican the republicans of course will say we don't tax and spend liberals fuck you but then there would be uh, people within the democratic party would say no we can't do that it's too expensive mm-hmm. and i think those people are going to get hounded out of the room by at least like progressive activists mm-hmm. a lot of journalists mm-hmm. pundit progressive pundit types people like that stuff's not really going to fly because everybody knows it's bullshit now yeah um whether you're like a full-on mmt or or you're just like a neo-keynesian or you're just like at the fucking moment like interest rates are like practically zero and the government is based the central banks are basically begging uh you know the the treasury to spend money if you just want to say that like we've got to spend money and so i think that initially the most likely thing and the most hopeful thing is that they pass more or less what this COVID package looks like. It's a huge influx. It's a lot of money. It's really important. It's a ton of money for states. For states and municipalities, that was one of the big things that was just 
the, the Trump administration, even the last COVID bill, it just they, they didn't want to give any money to the states. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the states can't deficit spend. So that's why there's austerity in the states all over the place. So that's huge. All the stuff in the bill. Yeah. And then I think we maybe get a second one and maybe a third one mm-hmm. in the next few months. And that's, and that's like the starting point for if that happens, then, you know, it's not like social democracy. It's not even close, yeah. but it's like, <laughs> well, it was worth it to win United government you know, to get that shit. Yeah. Cause, cause people are starving and suffering on the street, yeah. right? Well, like this is real. Yeah. I mean, there was the piece of the New York times today about, um, Biden's pandemic plan, mm. right? Not just in terms of spending, but the kind of, uh, health side of things, right. In terms of rolling out more vaccines, uh, just really basic stuff. So what Sam said about this being very obvious, right? The mm-hmm. deficits don't matter. And uh, it's good that people are recognizing that even if it's obvious, there's something you could say similarly about Biden's response to the pandemic, which the fact that it's so obvious, many of the things he wants to do, th- the fact that Trump didn't do them is such an indictment of Trump yeah. and how piss poor our response to the pandemic was from the start. But it's kind of like, well, if at least they're doing obvious things, that's better than I expected with Democrats <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's a, at least a start. And I would say further, you can kind of see, remember a few weeks ago, Joe Manchin kind of downplayed yeah. his interest in some of the, you know, $2,000 yeah, checks. checks. And then there was like blowback and he sort of walked it back. A little bit. He did walk right? a, little a little bit. And so I think there is a way in which we're in a moment just of a lot of instability and a lot of uncertainty in which you can see paradigms are shifting, just like with the rhetoric around deficits. And it doesn't mean things are going to go well or the left's going to win all the time. But I think the the glass half full scenario is something like we are in a moment when people are changing their minds and in which the kind of extremity of the crises we're facing yeah. maybe give people a little more incentive to think through things again or, or will push people who might not be uh, instinctively uh, sympathetic to the aims of the left to maybe go along with more than they would. And I think the left is in a stronger position than they were even a few years ago, than we were a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, even like if, it, for those of us who are veterans of the 2016 online wars, um, <laughs> you know, I just think there's a way in which there's more people making more progressive arguments in more places yeah. than there were a few years ago. And again, that doesn't guarantee anything, but you know, I think it's a moment of possibility and it'll be partly up to us to see if we can seize that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's an important point. I mean, the question of like, what does Biden do? What does his administration do on its own? What does the Senate do on its own is like, well, probably not much. Hmm. Like it's pretty shitty. Um, but I think incorporating into my sense of very, very hedged and provisional optimism, it's just that I think that there is a much more effectively organized, electorally inclined left in this country than there was in 2008 when when Obama took power with, with United Government. Because basically what happened then was that the left demobilized. Um, in some ways, like the Biden people like deliberately marginalized the like grassroots army that they had built in order to win the election. Yeah. Um, but also the left convinced itself at the time that Obama really was this like progressive champion. We had won. That, yeah. And that we had won. Yeah. And like, and, and we forget, but Obama beat Clinton in the primary, right? Like it was the populist winning against the establishment. That's true. And That's so true. 
Um, and of course, he was the first black president and he had this, you know, he had like some, if you wanted to look for it, you could see some kind of more radical pedigree yeah. in, in his history. Of course, now we know he was just reading those books to get uh, women yeah. at college. But but nonetheless, I just finished reading Pro- the Pro- A Promised Land. So like, I know exactly what but you're yeah, talking about. That was there. And Reverend Wright, you know, like if he had listened closely to Reverend Wright, then, uh, you know, he would have been a better man and a better president. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is that the left is not demobilized in the least. Mm. Like every time Biden does something that looks a little bit like maybe mm, backing off on some progressive priority, betraying something that he agreed to with Bernie or whatever, everybody goes fucking crazy. I mean, I don't know, like institutionally, where does that all come from? Like we've got justice Democrats, we've got DSA, DSA, at the moment, it doesn't seem like they necessarily want to be focused on like lobbying on behalf of democratic legislation in mm-hmm. Congress. But, you know, that organization does exist. The right flank of it is more invested in electoral politics, I'd say. Um, yeah, there's like indivisible even yeah. that exists. Like there's all these. I mean, Sunrise Movement. Yes. I mean, Sunrise Movement is the best example. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, where it's like they're committed progressives, uh, whether they're socialists or radicals or whatever, who are like just not going to give an inch when the administration tries to back down on anything that they try to do. And the final point I'll make, I'll make one more point about the left's capacities and sort of strategy and leverage. I've been harping on this with Matt a lot, but (laughs) it is really great that Chuck Schumer is the majority leader Mm. um, Okay, because he's in New York. And there's two, two things about that. One, the electoral like sort of left is as powerful as anywhere as it is in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've shown that we can unseat incumbents. Mm-hmm. And on that exact note, Chuck Schumer t- is terrified of a primary challenge from his left. Yeah. And he's ter- terrified of it from one person in particular. AOC. Yeah. AOC. Yeah. But, so uh, it might not be her. But the idea is that it puts the left in New York in a really powerful position to be able to like, look, Chuck, if you don't bring some good bills to the floor, mm-hmm. like if you don't you know, do right by the left, we're going to go for you. We're going to come for you. And that challenge actually has some teeth. Mm-hmm. And he's actually, if you follow Schumer over the past few years, two years, basically, he's moved left yeah. in ways that are, that are notable. And that has nothing to do with the goodness of his heart and everything to do with the fact that he's scared of being challenged from the left. It's political expedient. Yeah. 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 That's I mean, all that's the left ever does is create politically expedient <laughs> yeah. conditions for our enemies to change their mind or to, yeah. to move in our direction. And I, just to add to that, I mean, that's a key point, meaning you don't have to convert Chuck Schumer in the sense of have him come to agree with you on everything. If you can force him to do what you want, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that's enough. What he in his heart of heart believes isn't the real question. Mm-hmm. But I would just say too, to add to Sam's point, I really think Schumer was pissed off by how Senate Republicans behaved uh, during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings mm-hmm. and just, you know, the past few months of uh, the Trump administration. I, I think he was pissed. There were yeah. statements he made. You could tell he was pissed. And I think maybe some of the like institutional niceness in the Senate, uh, maybe that's been drained away a little bit. And uh, I would just say, too, it's been really encouraging. Bernie will be running the what? The uh, budget committee? Yeah. So I was yeah, going to ask you guys about that. Yeah. yeah and uh, like Warren Gunnell is one of his key aides, you know, has been on Twitter saying we're going to use budget reconciliation to try to do this and this and this. And maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. But it just seems like having someone like Bernie in a key position like that 
willing to use some of the the weapons and tools at his disposal, you know, it's it's better than nothing. Yeah, it's a powerful. Uh, chairmanship, no matter what, but uh-huh. in a condition where we have, uh, where we're going to have to do everything by budget reconciliation, basically anything that's at all, you know, partisan ideological legislation, we're going to have to do it with just 50 plus one. Bernie's like at the choke point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's at the most opportune like position that he could be at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to draw on two things, um, that you guys brought up or while you guys were talking. Um, my, my co-host Terrence Ray of the Trill Bill is, um, he said this and I think it's like genius. He said that uh, COVID was the uh, was the biggest revolutionary, I guess, entity, right, that we've seen thus far. Yeah. Right. In the terms that we were in a climate now where not even social democratic, but redistributive politics, right, are in vogue mm-hmm. because people are looking at the government, right, at a time when like, you know, people are out of work, people are going to get kicked out of their homes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people are like, you know, hinging upon like this $2,000, $600, $1,200 check. But we're at a time now where the party, either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, they have to address some of these concerns and move in a direction, right, (laughs) to show people that government can do good things, right? And Mm kind of coming off of that, too, Bernie also, I think, made people realize, like, on the left that, hey, the government can do something for people and can do good things for people. So I am hopeful, I guess, in that in this moment that even beyond COVID, that because these ideas are out in the open, that they'll become something that it's political expedience, right? That Democrats will run on these issues. But this is, I guess, the problem that I have is, and you guys kind of alluded to this, is like, I don't understand how the left, how the organized left holds the Democrats to account. How does that actually work out? Because in the 30s, you had like a strong labor movement, Mm -hmm. right? Where people were actually out there demonstrating. I mean, now, I mean, the labor movement is just very, very just fractured, right? I don't don't even know if you can say there's a left in the country. I mean, the closest thing I guess we saw over the summer. Yeah. But even over the summer, you had Democrats, right? On the election, they were talking about defund the police actually did a sin. Yeah. So how does the left actually leverage its power now, the activist left? Well, I mean, I think that's a question Sam's probably better Mm. equipped answer than I am because I've, you know, my background as I mentioned, is as a conservative. Yeah. yeah. Um, You're the enemy. (laughs) Yeah. And I came out of academia. So like, I'm the first to admit that my roots are not in organizing. It's not in a certain, I was never like a young left-wing activist. So my just like gut instincts about these questions are not ones I trust. And I often on the show defer to Sam in these areas. (laughs) That's why you guys Um, work together well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, but that said, um, this is what he does. He says anyway. He gives his opinion <laughs> anyway. anyway. Yeah. But I'm going to bloviate anyways. Um, but I, I mean, I agree with your assessment that the that the left, despite what I said earlier, you know, it's not historically speaking as strong as it might have been in the 1930s or something, right? Um, I was making a kind of relative comparison to just the past few few years. Yeah, which is a correct assessment. Yeah. Right. But um, I would say, like someone like John Ossoff, really leaning all in on the two thousand dollars a month was notable to me. Um, you know, that's not something that would have happened necessarily even just a few years ago when I think the democratic instinct would have been to run the most moderate candidates possible in a state like Georgia. But I, I, before I hand it over to Sam, I did want to pick up on one thing you said about, uh, COVID and the pandemic, which is, I do think this is a, a refrain of mine on know your enemy, which is that I do think COVID is and the pandemic has been a nightmare for right-wing ideology. Mm. And I think, you know, we've often spoken about that in terms of the right, meaning how have various right-wing figures and conservative figures, Republicans reacted. And it's kind of shown the bind they're in ideologically. This is just, you know, a pandemic is a bad thing for right-wing ideology because 
it requires the government to act. Exactly. And, you know, it, it, people look to the government because you, there's really no one else you can turn to. Uh, and I would just say, I think it matters beyond that in the sense that the kind of latent conservative ideas lots of people have, just like stuff about deficits, as we were mentioning earlier, I do think there's a way in which people now are willing to say, well, you, th- these numbers people use to describe the deficit, what do they even mean? They're an exactly. abstraction to me. But what's not abstract is me being out of work and maybe being kicked out of my apartment in a couple months yeah. or just not knowing you know, what I'm going to buy food with next week. Yeah. Um, those are not abstract questions. And I would say, furthermore, when it comes to things like healthcare, the pandemic has shown that hitching healthcare to employment is just a disastrous idea. It's insane. It's insane because what happens is then at a time when people are getting sick and being let go from work at the same time in such numbers, you're you're just showing that like having people show proof of insurance to get a vaccine or you know need uh, health insurance or not having the health insurance you know, to go get taken care of if they get COVID. Like we're just seeing that that system is madness and kind of the extremity of the pandemic. I think has been clarifying that, that so many of the baseline ideological assumptions that are right leaning in American politics. I think the pandemic has caused a lot of people to just rethink what those uh, premises were or even if it's temporary, just be willing to put aside some of the kind of, you know, just uh, ready at hand, tired slogans about our politics that um, just clearly do not fit the moment at all. Yeah. Yeah. On the same on the same tip, like one of the ideological engines of American capitalism is the basically the the moral mythology of poverty. Mm. And we talked about this on the podcast quite a lot, which is the idea that people deserve their condition. Yeah. That if they're poor, they're poor for something that they did wrong. Yeah. Responsabilization. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you lost your job, you that's because of something you did wrong. That whatever whatever bad thing is happening to you in, in your life economically is somehow your fault. And whether or not you're a liberal or a leftist or a right wing or whatever, that ideology is sunk so deep into the like minds of every American um, in such a profound way that, you know, I, I, I talk about sometimes like you know this is true because when someone walks down the street in a city and they see a homeless person and they ask them for money and they uh, have to make that choice about whether they're going to give them money or not, um, but basically sort of like try to put it out of their mind whether whether they do give them money or not. You know, in a humane society in which people's best human instincts were being activated on a daily basis, in which they were not infected by ideology in a deep way, uh, when you see someone suffering and asking you, I'm suffering, please help me, I'm suffering, you would do anything to help them. Yeah, you wouldn't think twice about it. Honestly, it's like that Louis C.K. bit, if you know what I'm talking about. We know we shouldn't talk about Louis C.K. But there's this Louis C.K. bit where he talks about how he has his like his like cousin from the country comes into the city and the first thing she sees is like a homeless guy on the city platform, on the, on the subway platform. And she goes up to him and she's like, oh my God, what happened to you? What can I do to help you? And, and, and Louis C.K. is like, and I was the one who said to her, oh, don't do that. You're being weird. Stop that. <laughs> yeah. And that, but that's just like, that's America. Like, right. The, and the point is that even people of good heart and good politics go around with some kind of myopic ideology in their head that convinces them that it's okay that they're not suffering while other people are suffering in such extreme ways. Yeah. <laughs> and with, if that's not the case, then, you know, we would have radical uprising against those conditions on a daily basis. And we had, we would have this so much more kindness. Yeah. 
So we know that that's there. I think that the pandemic has broken that down to some degree. It's sort of stalled out this particular ideological engine because people know it's not their fault they don't have a job. People know it's not their fault that they have to wait in a in a in a line to get food because there's a pandemic and the government mm-hmm. shut down the economy on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a significant factor. Of course, what we're talking about is like ideological conditions that make it possible for movement building, mm-hmm. not that a movement necessarily automatically arises when those conditions are in place. Of course. So to the question of like, how does the left wield power in this moment? I think, I don't know exactly. I, I agree. I agree that the left is weak in many ways, mm-hmm. like historical comparison wise. And I think if you want to be pessimistic about it, right, like I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with the idea of like Biden won the primary. He ran against Trump, the man, and he is this figure of restoration of the old consensus in democratic politics and that there's going to be a lot of people, pundits, politicians who will want to go back. Mm who will want to go back to the status quo ante before Trump, like of, of just being like, oh, we've got like a normal president again. Isn't this nice? Yeah, yeah. We've got a, we've got a, we've got a, a good, a good new dad who's nicer than our old dad. And we'll, and we'll, everything will work out. Mm-hmm. That instance is going to be strong. The left is going to have to fight it. I think that the areas of leverage are the sorts of things I already alluded to. It's like, Schumer, how much pressure can like New York DSA, New York Indivisible, um, the unions in New York put on him to make sure that he knows that he's fucked if he doesn't do right by them? I think generally speaking, we're in a much better position in general that like the left has embraced the primary system as a way of exerting power. That wasn't the case in 2008. That's true. There was no institutions for that. That's true. And then you had folks like Rahm Emanuel too, who were like, you know, specifically like, you know, a cudgel against like the progressive left. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing. That was what the, that was what the Tea Party consisted of was primary threats to uh, sitting uh, Republicans. And that's how they built you know, the sort of like the right resurgence of that era was powered by the willingness of ideological groups to primary sitting Republicans or put pressure on sitting Republicans with the fear or the threat of a primary challenge. So I think we have that too. Like a lot of these Democrats are much less safe than they would otherwise be because the left has shown that we can unseat incumbents. Yeah. 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 And then finally, like the labor movement, like, fuck, there's not that much. (laughs) I mean, it's really... It's really bad. Um, Hannah and I watched uh, Madewan last night. Have you ever seen that movie? No. The John Sayles movie about like the United Mine Workers strike in uh, 1920. Mm. It's a great movie. And it was it came out in 1987. Um, and it had this, this weird kind of thing where like the hero of the movie is the Chris Cooper character who's like a former wobbly now like communist labor organizer. But the end of the movie ends as if at that moment like a lot of people die and seems like the prospects are not good. Um, but it was really, what was interesting about it is that it was really like a movie made about 1920 that was sort of about 1987 mm. when it felt like the, the labor movement was really on its back heel. Of course, the reality is that the labor movement got even way more on its back heel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We thought in the late 1980s, we we're like, fuck, it's all over. It was like, it's going to get way more all over than mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But I think that if you want to be hopeful, maybe they can pass the PRO Act. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, piece of labor legislation, union legislation that would make it a lot easier to unionize, um, you know, would introduce a lot of labor law reform that has the way that the status quo is that it 
it's all very tilted in the favor of, of bosses and anti-union lawyers and stuff. Um, maybe like, I know that like some people in the labor movement who think about this stuff, think that there can be like a blitz of organizing when COVID is over, everybody goes back to work. They've been radicalized by this experience. Um, and then there's a ton of union organizing that happens right then where everybody goes in and they're like, look, this shit happened. You didn't have any protection. We need to be working together. We need to be on, you know, we need to have solidarity for when the next shit happens and make that argument and put a lot of resources into it. That seems plausible. And then, of course, there's people who want to talk about um, sectoral bargaining. Mm. There's an interesting thing that's happened. It was starting to happen in the beginning of the pandemic where because there were whole sectors of the economy that were affected by the pandemic in particular ways, people in the labor movement started talking about how you might be able to organize on a sectoral basis and that you could get the federal government to pass legislation that made sectoral bargaining easier. And that seems like in terms of like the one weird trick to like massively increasing union membership in the country uh, quickly, it would be something like that. And I mean, like, and I mean, that's also like, you know, it's a question where even I as an organizer too, I'm like, man, I don't fucking know. You know, it feels like one of those things where it's like, we're in the heat of the moment and it'll happen as it happens. Yeah. Right. And we can plan for it, but there's no way that we can like predict. Mm -hmm. All right. I do think that I do think that um, like I'm with uh, Gabe Winant on the fact that like the the areas of the most concentrated radical labor activity in the past few years have been uh, education Mm. and the health sector. Yeah. And the pandemic has almost certainly radicalized the health sector even more. And uh, I think that because care work has been so important in this era, you know, we kind of like lost the essential worker language, which I had some mixed misgivings about anyway. I'll say real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, home healthcare workers, people who work in nursing homes, um, the sort of the lowest rungs of the healthcare system who are not as organized as, say, nurses, you know, maybe there can be a, a wave of organizing in those sectors too, um, because these people were like, heroes of the moment and they sacrifice so much. So because I am a, people will classify me as a doomer and we've been a little bit too optimistic. Um, I want to turn to the right now and um, we'll talk a little bit about what happened on January 6th. But first, you know, Trump lost, but that doesn't mean that like his base, right? Which I, I, I don't know, I believe it's what, like maybe 40 to 50% of the GOP that would consider themselves like Trumpist, you know, and the remainder, I guess, consider themselves more like, I guess, a McCain sort of Republican. I think it's probably higher than that. You think it's but probably it, higher? That's terrifying. Like 50% who say that he's won, yeah. right? Yeah, that he's won. It's higher than that. Jeez. And yeah. you see at a poll today that 73% of Republicans say uh, Biden did not legitimately win the election. And even Trump's approval rating in the Republican Party is still incredibly high. Now, how many of those are committed Trumpists yeah, versus, okay, yeah. right. you know, polarized uh, respondents to uh, a questionnaire or something? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure what the number is, but I think it's high. Well, well, that's that's the problem, right? Is that like the mm-hmm. GOP is like, you know, minoritarian, white identitarian, a liberal party, right? Yeah. Um, they'll, and they'll utilize illiberal means, right? To, to gain power as a minoritarian party. Um, it seems that that kind of nativist, white supremacist energy is, has been bubbling and it's always been there. But now there's a vacuum because there isn't like a figure like Trump, right, to seize upon that. Um, what what Republicans, and now this is where we bring up Josh Hawley, what, what sort of, what is the Republican movement in the absence of Trump, right? At least the Republicans that would appeal to that base. What does that look like? Because I know people throw around Josh Hawley and you guys have a great episode um, on national conservatism, right? Um, There was a conference where Hawley spoke at. Mm -hmm. But to me personally, and we saw this like 
right before like the siege on the 6th, there was a picture of him raising up his fist, right? To all the <laughs> yeah. supporters. Yeah. But like, I think that people like Kim and Cruz- But he looked like a chump. Yes, you can see right fucking through him. Yeah. Like he's, was, yeah, he's cosplaying, exactly. he's LARPing. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But then there are other people who, um, and we'll talk about this more too when we talk about the six, but there are people like, I'm a Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, mm-hmm. or maybe even like Lauren Boebert, who seem <laughs> to me, yeah, these people are truly insane and more terrifying yeah. than Holly or Cruz. What do you think the Republican Party does in the absence of Trump in order to kind of like continue to throw red meat at the, this base of people? Are there any figures that can pop up and be like a Trump-like figure? I mean, this is, I mean, one question is whether Trump will actually go away. Yeah, he might run again, right? In 2024. Yeah, now that he's off social media and off Twitter, I do think he's been diminished somehow. Yeah. Like that really was a powerful tool for him. Yeah. Uh, even t- in terms of just like setting setting things into the discourse or debate, yeah. right? Just to throw them out there and see how they, you know, yeah. see how people respond. To exactly. Them, you know? But I, I share your instincts, Aaron. I find someone like Holly, someone like Tom Cotton, uh, someone like Ted Cruz even more Yes, uh, to just be, I mean, they have all the charisma of a wet towel <laughs> and they just, you know, once you've had the good shit, you're not going to go back to something cut with filler, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You go for the real shit. Yeah. And so I don't know where it goes in the sense that I don't think Holly or Cotton or any of these people are going to step into Trump's role. Mm. I think there is a sense in which Trump held it all together in some hard to define way it, through his personal charisma, mm. his kind of, you can see when he's speaking to crowds, the way he feeds off of them and kind of feels the energy. He's a road comic. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, he, he is a kind of talented stand up performer. Yeah. Um, his background in television in a strange way. He like the one talent I would say Trump has. I I you know, I think he's not that intelligent in many ways. He's deeply uninformed, he's ignorant, but I do think he had this sixth sense for what would play with the base. And to me, the Hollies and Cottons and Cruises, they're not gonna step in and fill that role. What worries me is the kind of the second point or the second part of your uh, comment, which is the the Marjorie Taylor Greens, yeah. the Lauren Boberts. These are truly deranged people. Fucking psychotic. I mean, they're insane. But they're clearly giving the base, like they're winning these congressional races, right? Like they're going through Republican primaries and winning. And so that tells me that something Trump-like, that mix of conspiracy theories, white nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, QAnon conspiracy theories, um, deeply, deeply anti-immigrant sentiment, just the kind of the worst impulses on the right, those are clearly ascendant. And they're, there's, they, they, as we pointed out on Know Your Enemy many times, those have been on the right for a long time. I mean, mm. the modern conservative movement was birthed in many ways as a response to the civil, gains of the civil rights movement, mm. right? And we know that from the get-go with the New Deal, uh, any kind of progressive economic legislation, they've been against it from the start. There's always a reaction. There's always been the reaction there. But to me, it, it, with Trump, it really was like, the institutional Republican Party, which had always been run by the Bush family, right? And the kind of maybe not more moderate in some ways, but the more presentable conservatives. Yeah. They yeah. were running, they were running the party. And they that really slipped out of their control in 2016. And to me, it seems like the inmates are running the prison now. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and I just don't know how you get that toothpaste back into the tube. So I think what we're gonna see on the right is just a, a lot of ugliness, a lot of conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. a lot of just, I mean, Lauren Boebert, you mentioned her. I mean, she seems 
I mean, I'm, I don't even know what words to use to describe okay. her. I mean, there it's indescribable. Like gun toting. Now the people are investigating. She gave a tour of the Capitol right before the day before the day before the, yeah. the January 6th. And like what role that might've played in having some of these people, you know, having access and understanding of the Capitol grounds. Like we don't know, but so that's still to be determined, but it's really ugly. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Sam? What What do you What What is your your sense on this? Um, you know, the Josh Hollies and the Tom Cottons versus the real psychos. Yeah, well, I agree with Matt. I mean, I think it's it's really funny to watch uh, Josh Holly and and Tom Cotton like try to do their Trump act. <laughs> yeah. Um, or even like uh, you know, like these prairie state like Republican governors during the like during the twenty twenty like presidential election mm-hmm. try to do their best version of uh, you know owning the libs and stuff. Um, yeah, they don't, they're not, they don't have it. They don't have it in them. But um, I mean, not to interrupt you, but do you remember when Cruz was running for president in 2016, you know, like a year or two before the first Iowa primaries, you start showing up in Iowa, yeah. you go to the state fairs. There was that tweet where Ted Cruz, uh, it was a photo of him in front of a, a cow made of butter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he, he said, one of his daughter's first words were, I like butter. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like, that obviously like is a lie. <laughs> and the thing is when Trump lies, it's kind of funny, right? Yeah. There's something absurd about Trump. Yeah. Yeah. But when Cruz does it, it's just like, you're a pathetic panderer. Yeah. yeah. And you know, in our episode, we just released on fascism. I think one of the things we actually got at was that, you know, there's a bond between Trump and the base Yeah. that transcends purely ideological or intellectual or policy considerations. So to try to say, well, Trump's really about Trumpism, which is some nationalist populist form of conservatism. And therefore, if someone like Holly or Cotton or Cruz adopts a more nationalist populist conservatism, they can step into that gap. It totally misses the true dynamics at work in Trump's support. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's right. Sorry to interrupt you, Sam. No, no. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Go I, just, I had to get in the butter comment because I just saw it the other day and I was like, this man is so, so pathetic. <laughs> I don't have anything to add. I think that's all right. Um, I just want to bring up a quote that, because um, I just finished listening to that um, that episode, Did It Happen Here? Um, and there was this quote that you guys brought up from um, Maya Angelou, where she says something like, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. <laughs> and Trump is very, very good at doing that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I guess my mm-hmm. concern, well, I'll ask this one first. Um. I'll, I'll ask this first is this tenuous alliance, right, between the far right and the, I guess, more, I mean, to me, they're far right, but I guess the more presentable, yeah. as you said, Matt, right? This is like they're, they're making a deal with the devil, right? What is it that, and I mean, I guess I have my own answers, right? I think the chief answer is white supremacy. <laughs> but what is, what is like that connects them together, right? I guess that, that fiber that kind of connects them together in this tenuous alliance, even though like right after we saw January 6th, like there were Republicans, even if they didn't say it outright, who were apparently ashamed or sickened of what happened. Right. <laughs> but they don't come out right and say anything. What is that that what is that that thing that's connecting them, that tissue? Because, hmm. I mean, you could just say white supremacy, but I think it's a little bit more <sighs> complex than that layered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one one thing is I don't think that the Republican Party wanted to be obviously the Republican Party tried to beat Trump in 2016. You know, they they wanted somebody else. And I think a lot of the Republicans who are still in positions of power in the party, if they could just delete the past four years, <laughs> yeah. they probably would, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, whether or not that would be in the best interest of their political ends, I'm not entirely sure. But I think their instinct would be, this has been too much of a mess. Like when, with after January 6th, that was uh, when everyone was like, really like, you know what, enough. Yeah. Like if we can get away from this, then all the better. I think for one thing, I don't see how they do it. Yeah. Those people, like I think, you know, McConnell clearly started to signal like, sure, impeach him. I don't care. Like it's over. Like, uh, you know, I got what I needed from him and now I want to move on. I don't think they get to do that. And I think that the base is ahead of them. Mm-hmm. The base is already more Trumpified than, you know, it's like um, Ben Sass said a few weeks ago, like I don't remember when was this, like in December, where he said like, you know, in private, I don't find a single elected Republican who says they don't think that Biden won the election. Mm-hmm. Right. But the base is all the way off there already. Mm. Like they can't put that cat back into the bag. And I think if if Trump and his family want to continue to be involved in politics, as it appears that they do, um, it's going to be a huge problem for uh, Republicans who want to move on. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the question to me is like, I think there are some scenarios that I can see where that infighting in the Republican Party is beneficial to the left or at least to the Democrats, Mm. um, where like they're getting primaried by these absolute wackos and wasting their time um, and money fighting that off where the Republican base is divided between people who want to move on and people who are still obsessed with Trump. Mm. Um, But then the other question is, does the existence of that radicalized base mean that we're in for a future of like more political violence from the right? Are we in for a future of like, even just like the stochastic lone wolf crazies who like spend enough time on QAnon forums to be convinced that like, you know, some democratic congressperson is like a, a, no pedophile. Pedophile. Yeah. yeah, and goes, goes and, and shoots up a, a rally or something like that stochastic stuff mm-hmm. can do an enormous amount of damage, even if the movement isn't particularly well organized. So I have a really hard time predicting what happens next with the Republican Party writ large. Mm-hmm. And I think that there have been really dangerous, violent, cruel forces unleashed in American politics on the right, which are going to be with us for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find it very difficult to see all that far down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Aaron, let me try to answer one part of your question, which is what holds kind of what holds it all together, uh, you know, meaning the different elements of the Republican Party, the more presentable elements of it with the more all in Trumpist base. Yeah. And I keep going back to this a Corey Robin post from 2017 uh, that was titled Trump was the best the Republicans could do. And I do think there's a way in which the Republicans are in a bind, meaning Trump turned out, as you pointed out earlier, 10 million more people than he did in 2016. Yeah. Like, what other Republican could have done that? Yeah. Probably none. But you also see it wasn't enough. So I think that's part of the Republicans' bind, that Trump probably does represent their best hope in terms of generating enthusiasm and getting people out to vote for them. Wow. He is so destructive and turns off so many people as well. Yeah. Like that dynamic is at work. Right. But I would say, you know, I think you're right to point to white supremacy being a kind of glue that helps hold this all together. But I also appreciate that you think it might be more complicated than that, because I I think one way of understanding why some people signed on to Trump's campaign and and have backed him so faithfully as president is something like, you know, Republicans have only won the popular vote at the presidential level one time since 1992. Mm. Right. Uh, George W. Bush in 2004 was their only popular vote win in the last, you know, uh, about 30 years. Mm. Right. Right. And we know America, the United States, is moving towards a majority-minority country, right? Where 
a certain kind of white majority, a white Christian majority, is their uh, their power is slowly lessening. Now yeah. we can point to you know Republican gains with black men or Latino men, right? We there's all and demographics is not destiny, right? I'm not falling into that trap, but you can see where the the, the kinds of demographics that powered Ronald Reagan to winning 49 states in 1984. 49 states, <laughs> uh, right? A, a landslide we haven't seen since. No. Um, th- that's been slowly, slowly dwindling. And yeah. I think when you see something like uh, in 2016, uh, remember the article, the Flight 93 election? No, I don't remember that. No, no. Where it was by uh, uh, Anton, what, Sam, do you remember Michael his name? Anton. Michael Anton, who, who would go on to serve in Trump's National Security Council. And he wrote this article under a pseudonym because it was so provocative and incendiary. But that idea of storming the cockpit and taking control of the plane because it's going to crash or being, you know, being flow into something, I think that really got at something key in the right wing psyche, which is they feel that their power in this country in a certain way has been slowly diminishing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that they're increasingly, as you pointed out as well, being a kind of minoritarian party, they're increasingly reliant on the anti-democratic, illiberal features of our constitution. And they can feel this. And Trump, who presented himself as the only thing standing between them and the abyss, mm. I think was a powerful argument because it it does tap into white supremacy, yeah. but it kind of taps into it in a way that is is even a bit more capacious than that because it's in this context of a certain kind of white majority dwindling yeah. Yeah. and them just feeling like the country they grew up in, the country they knew, the country from, you know, sort of whatever rosy 1950s view of America you might hold, whatever, whatever is meant by making America great again, whichever kind of America you thought was great, they know that slipping away. Yeah. And I think that made them all the more willing to go along with Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I noticed too, um, you know, especially I've worked for the Democratic Party before, the, the Democratic Party, they're not afraid of their base, right? Yeah. Like they don't give a shit about the, like the organizer, activist, progressive base. But it seems that the Republicans are actually terrified, right? I don't know if terrified is the word, right? But they they really have their ear to the ground when it comes to their the more radical elements of their base, because that's what's going to help keep them in power. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So they have to rely on these people. And um, I guess to like kind of end off then, because you guys are the perfect people to talk with this about, because I, I still don't know what to make of it January 6th. Like it was like, I think I'm still in like a phrase that you guys used um, when you covered it, storming the Capitol. But it was like menacingly absurd. Yeah. You know, it was like, it, I, I won't call it an insurrection, you know, like a coup or anything, but a siege, sure. But help me make sense of that. What the fuck was that? Because I feel like we crossed like a Rubicon. And Sam, you were kind of alluding to this before, where I can see a future in which political violence like that or just like stochastic terrorism is more likely. And this feels like we crossed that Rubicon, right? Like we've reached that point of no return. How, what, what do you, what sense do you guys make of what the fuck happened? Cause I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Yeah. Matt, do you want to go first? <laughs> I'll, I'll say something short that maybe will tee Sam up. Uh, but I think one thing that's, that's just uh, worth reiterating, which I mentioned earlier, which is when you have three quarters of a party think that Joe Biden, meaning the Republicans, that Joe Biden did not legitimately win the election. Three quarters of a Republican surveyed said that you have, that many people believe that Joe Biden did not win legitimately. Some portion of that is going to take that rhetoric seriously yeah, yeah. And, say, and say, if this really is a kind of blasphemy against the Constitution, 
if this really is stealing an election, then shouldn't you do something? Exactly. I mean, because if, if you kind of reverse the roles and someone came to us, three of, you know, us and people who think like us and said, this horrible thing, this terrible injustice just unfolded. Are you just going to stand by and let it happen? Yeah. Yeah. You know, people would get out on the streets. And, you know, I just think when you combine that lying, that re- de- deceiving people and filling their brains with conspiracy theories, and then you add on to that the layer of QAnon, you add in the right wing gun culture, hmm. you write in, you fold in the kind of militia element. I mean, some of the equipment these people had. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> talk about economic anxiety. These were thousands of dollars worth of equipment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I grew up around guns. I know what some of the shit costs. I know what a bulletproof vest costs. Yeah. I know, you know, right. The kind of military or paramilitary, quasi-military equipment they had. It's not cheap. And so you just mix in all these elements, the conspiracy theories, the lies, the sense that this election was stolen. And you put that on top of basically the dry kindling mm. of existing militia movements, QAnon stuff, et cetera, et cetera, guns. It's just like lighting a match yeah. and throwing it on it. And, you know, you do that enough, you're going to get something like January 6th. It has to happen. Yeah. And it's happened at state capitals. Remember, just the day before, they uh, Republicans in Pennsylvania refused to see That's true. Uh, a, a, a Democratic state senator, and they wouldn't let John Fetterman, the uh, lieutenant governor, run the session, which was, you know, his right to do. Yeah. Yeah. So we see this all over the place. I, I mean, I think we'll see stuff at state capitals in the next few weeks, too, that you might be surprised by or that that turn uglier or more worrisome than you might think. And so to me, it's just a, a bunch of factors coming together. And then when you had Trump at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue mm. <laughs> saying this election was stolen, we have to respond with strength. Mm. And they literally march yeah. right to the Capitol and do this. It was incitement. It was direct incitement. Yeah. So why did it happen? One reason is Trump fucking incited it. Yeah, he told him to fucking do it. But, but, but that didn't come from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I agree with Matt. I don't know if I have that much to add to it. I mean, I, I, I remember something we talked about on our a bonus episode after the, um, after the, the siege on the Capitol um, was, I don't know if you saw Trump's like tweet, one of the tweets that got deleted. Mm. It was one where he, it was before he got chastened and realized that he needed to apologize or not apologize, but, you know, say everybody go home, blah, blah, blah. It was one where he said something like, you know, you know, we should go home in peace, but we should never forget this day, you know? Yeah. Like, and I, I said to Matt, like, um, on the podcast, it reminded me so much of when, um, I'm Aaron, I bet you're familiar with this. Like when you do an action, a left-wing, you know, radical political action, and it's one of those things that's like all spectacle, Mm -hmm. you aren't really going to win, you know, but you make, you try to make a big impact. You try to get in the headlines, whatever. Try to get people excited. You try to get the group excited. You try to get, it's internal organizing. Yes. Right. You go and you leave the action and you know, you have a a huddle and the organizers are like, that was great. Didn't that feel good? Didn't that feel amazing to be in there? You have to boost morale to make people want to come back out. Yeah. You got to boost morale to make people want to come back. And then what we say, we're we're marching away and we say, we'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. And that tweet, it just reminded me so much of that. And the thing is, I think if you want to be, not if you want to be, but if you're inclined to be worried, I think that for some of the people who have participated, we'll see what happens. Maybe they they get so fucked up by the police, by the DOJ, because they recorded literally all their crimes. Um, (laughs) That doesn't happen. But I do think that, I do think that 
participating in something like that can be a galvanizing organizing moment mm -hmm. if there's a well enough organized movement around it mm -hmm. um, or some kind of place to pl put that energies mm -hmm. in the future. Mm -hmm. So that concerns me. Yeah. Well, and it's concerning the number of like ex-military, off-duty cops, yes, uh, even state legislators. Yeah. I mean, people who actually have strategic, like military, you know, law enforcement, yeah. mm -hmm. like people who can like plant bombs yeah. and do shit to actually hurt people. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it just, again, uh, these people flew to, many of them flew to DC. Mm. And again, the, the equipment they had and were wearing, and it indicates to me that these are kind of people with more wherewithal, yeah. capable of reconstituting themselves in different forms or in different actions over the next however many months or years that that's a real possibility. This was not just the wretched of the earth who showed up in DC yeah. and were a ragtag band, yeah. uh, you know, of, of, uh, you know, angry workers or something. This felt like, this felt like practice. Yeah. This felt like a test run. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's like, it's, it's tempting on the left to be like, this was ridiculous. This wasn't serious. It wasn't really any grave threat to America at, at any particular moment. And even be like contemptuous toward the like, liberal idea of like the citadel of democracy was invaded by these uh, people with no respect for American values, whatever. It's easy and tempting on the left to be like, these are clowns. It doesn't matter. It's not scary. Yeah. But I think there's really no, no justification for that. Yeah. Like you have to take this shit seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Like, these are, these are white supremacists with guns and training. Yeah. And a sympathetic state, or at least at least elements, like sympathetic elements. Elements of the state. That's exactly right. Some parts of the state willing to license it, willing to create a state of exception um, and, and allow this kind of stuff to happen more often. Yeah. Before I let you guys go, um, I usually, when I, I start my, sh I started it in reverse this time, because usually I start the show, we're talking about really, really bad shit throughout. And then at the end, I'm like, the whole, what's the hope in it? But <laughs> we did that first. But um, I'm going to ask you guys a question that you kind of already answered. Um, at the end of your, uh, did it happen here? Was this the F word? Was this fascism? Are we, have we crossed that Rubicon where, and I think actually Richard Seymour, you guys brought that up. Um, he used the term um, like an inchoate fascism, right? Like it's in its speculative phase. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I ask you guys, what was this? Was this a fascist like endeavor that we saw? Can have we kind of got there? We we can start using that language, or at least these um these elements, symbols of fascism. I'm gonna put you guys on the spot. Well, during the episode, we gave our answers to that, and I I leaned yes, and Sam leaned no. I was surprised, but, that, actually. but, but I think but I think both of us and Sam can say more about this. You know, I think we were conflicted. Mm. Like I said yes, but with some caveats, and Sam said no with some caveats. And for me, just even researching for that episode, it was very helpful because I do think the fascist term is so explosive, mm -hmm. right? And, and so it's, it's, it's you know, not a term to use lightly. And I, you know, I mentioned George Orwell said we should use it with circumspection. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with that. But to me, the usefulness, I think the debate about fascism, what's often descended into bickering and kind of petty, egoistic sniping on Twitter, I think the more careful analyses of the of this debate, some of the more thoughtful written uh, exchanges it's produced, and, and even conversations like the Sam, the one Sam and I had, I think it has forced me personally to drill down into what I think really are the key constitutive elements at work in our political life right now. Mm -hmm. And I think 
even if you side against applying the label fascist to what we saw during Trump's four years, and especially on January 6th, I think the fact that it's even possible to have that debate, like no one, like very few people are saying this is just a totally ridiculous debate, Mm. right? Lots of people are joining this debate in good faith. And I think that just speaks to the gravity of the moment. And in some ways, by the fact that the specter of fascism has been raised, Mm. I think it's that is itself a telling sign that we're really in uh, some complicated and dangerous territory right now. Yeah, we're in a liminal space right now where it might not be fascism. Yet, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I would say that to 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 defend myself or uh, my, <laughs> your honor, my yeah. position on the product. but you know, I w- I would say in more detail or more explicitly than I said on the on our podcast episode. I don't think. I guess I don't think Trump himself is a fascist. Um, though, of course, we complicated what that would even mean a million times in our flurry of nuance on the podcast. Um, I think we are, of course, in a potentially fascist moment, mm. or that could become one. But I make that distinction because I actually think that uh, Dylan Riley's uh, suggestion that Trump is best understood as a patrimonial mm. um, political leader in the like Weber's taxonomy, in the sense that what he does is basically run the government uh, for his own benefit and for the benefit of his family and close allies, um, for his own enrichment. Uh, he's like, the, just the daily corruption that was part of this government seemed in some ways more emblematic of his mode of rule, even than his then sort of like the right wing violence that was associated with it. And I think that a lot of those sort of like daily conflict crises and um, scandals in the Trump era can really be linked to the incompatibility of this patrimonialist figure running a government still based on like liberal bureaucratic rationality. Yeah. So this is a grinding of these two conflicting modes of rule against each other is really what produced so much of the really insane shit that happened. Yeah. Um, and so Trump, patrimonialist, our political moment, potentially fascist. Yeah. Yeah. One reason I said yes on the podcast to the fascist, yay or nay, Trump fascist, is because it was a yes or no question. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I just would say, I think Sam's right that the patrimonial designation has a hu- huge amount of explanatory power mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis of the Trump administration. I think that's definitely true. And I would say what you mentioned earlier, the inchoate fascism that Seymour points to, to me, that's one of the takeaways of the readings I did on fascism is that, you know, starting with a list of fascist qualities Mm. or characteristics, and then like a list of 10 things and trying to apply it to Trump is the wrong way to approach the question. Especially if you're trying to prevent it. Yeah. Right. Yes. And uh, someone like uh, Robert Paxton, what I liked about him is his emphasis on kind of historical development Mm. that, you know, fascism will take root in a certain country with a certain tradition, right? And so fascism looked a little different in Germany than in Italy versus Spain or France. You know, there are, they don't all look identical, even if you can point to certain family resemblances. Um, And so that's just to say, if, if some, if it is something like inchoate fascism, that means it won't be fully fascist until it is. Exactly. And, And so that idea of development, that things can start and then develop and move along a certain trajectory based on particular circumstances. That's that's sort of where I ultimately landed, I think. Or, you know, if I were to spell out my views in all their complexity, it would it would get at those kinds of things, which is that, you know, I think we see the root or germ of something here yeah. that really has the potential to, to flower into something more uh, characteristically fascist, even if you resist that label right now in this moment. But that's that's the thing. It's it's not fascist till it is. Exactly. Yeah. Angela Davis says fascism is a process too. And we, we mm-hmm. work with some of the, of her critiques of 
even the kind of like traditional historian's concept of fascism, which is as like a European import. Um, I think fascism has a uniquely American genealogy too. So um, fascism is a process. Uh, And if we think about it that way, then we have to be a lot more vigilant about, uh, you know, looking out for it. Well, guys, that's a great place to leave it. We are in the midst, in the process of fascism, which means that we still have time. Right? <laughs> um, guys, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, I mean, I've shouted out your your pod like a couple of times, but please, like you guys, plug whatever you have, especially individually. You can go ahead first, Matt, if you want. Sure. I mean, all I would say is that uh, I'm an editor at Commonweal, a, a progressive Catholic magazine, and uh, I, I'm, I stand out on the left sometimes because I'm openly religious, too. I'm Catholic. And so I wanted to shout out my magazine. Um, and of course, we're really grateful for you having us on and, and mentioning Know Your Enemy. So I hope your listeners will check out Know Your Enemy. And, uh, oh, and so- I'm going to leave a link to that uh, uh, Did It Happen Here episode. I'm going to leave a link to it in the show notes. And uh, before I let Sam shout out anyone he wants to or any institution he wants to, you know, Know Your Enemy is sponsored by Dissent. Um, I'm on Dissent's editorial board. Sam and I have both written for them a number of times. And other than Commonweal, Descent is kind of my second home too. So I'm really grateful for everything they've done for us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have that much more to add. Listen to our podcast and, uh, you know, sign up for a Patreon so I can uh, <laughs> keep, keep myself an expensive ride. Uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we're very grateful to Descent. And I, Matt and I both have essays in the, in the newest, in the issue of Descent that just came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so check those out. I wrote about some of the stuff that we talked about a little bit, which is like the organizing possibilities for the left in this moment. Oh, yeah. I actually remember seeing that article. I'm going to have to read it. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. 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 And um, y'all listen again, please like become a patron of Know Your Enemy. I mean, like I listen to like five podcasts now, but um, you guys, I'm always like, you know, I have the notification set because I'm always nice. excited nice. for what it goes on. I really appreciate That's you guys. So, Thank uh, you. Oh, yeah. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate that you uh, have this podcast that's named after uh, the great Gramsci quote, uh, which puts you in a genealogy with people. Pete Buttigieg and Pete Buttigieg's father. Oh, <laughs> a time of monsters. That could literally be a Buttigieg translation of the original Italian. So you have a, a strong connection to the new, uh, the incoming uh, Secretary of Transformation. Yeah. <laughs> word. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates.